If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open, if you would, to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we will look at a few verses in chapter 18 and a few verses out of chapter 19. But we will start reading in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 13 in just a moment. Now we're going to continue our look at at some biblical characters and lessons we can learn from their lives. We started this quite some time back. We took a little pause and we're starting it back up. And we're going to look at a few episodes out of the life of a very famous biblical character, a man by the name of Elijah. Now Elijah, you may remember, was a prophet in Old Testament Israel. And his, uh, he was... His ministry overlapped that of King Ahab in Israel. Now, Ahab was not, he didn't have a ministry. He was a very wicked king. And, uh, but it, it was during his reign that Elijah served. Now, you remember that Elijah confronted King Ahab on a number of occasions, and, there some, and we'll look at some of those today. Um, and I believe there are three main lessons that we can learn from the instances in Elijah's life that we will look at. And so I just want to jump right in. We're not going to have a big intro. I just want to jump right in. So if you found First um, Kings chapter 18 and are able, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. We'll pick up in verse 13. And kind of like we've done in the past, we will jump around to some different verses and I'll try to fill in the gaps um, a little bit later. Picking up in verse 13, um, a man named Obadiah is speaking to Elijah. He says, Has it not been told to my master uh, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you're saying, Go, say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. Now the master here in this case is Ahab. Um, Obadiah says, He will then kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you, have, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message to all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together uh, at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to, to, to all the people and said, How long will we hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Jump over to chapter 19 and verse 1. This is after this showdown on Mount Carmel. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as, one of, as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left a servant there. But he, hid, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And jump down to verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous of the Lord, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Um, I thought there was more of that, but I guess not. Okay, well, I'll just reference it here in a little bit. Uh, go ahead and have a seat if you would. Now, the first uh, lesson I want to draw out of the life of Elijah is that we ought to be courageous. We ought to be courageous. Now, where we pick up in our story in chapter 18, um, and, and really, I'll reference back to chapter 17. You remember, uh, Ahab was a very wicked king. He was, he was a, a rotten scoundrel, and his wife made him look almost, I won't say made, made him look like a saint, but made him look a lot better. Because Jezebel, we looked at her back, I think it was on Mother's Day, we looked at Jezebel, um, but Jezebel was, was rotten to the core. She was bad. She introduced Baal worship, brought that over from Phoenicia, and, and Ahab led the nation to worship the Baals. Now, in chapter 17, Elijah confronts Ahab, and he says that God is going to withhold the rain on the land for three years, and then when it does rain, it will only be at his command. Now, the last few years, we've had what they call drought conditions here in southwest Missouri. And if, if you've watched the news any, you've seen the big maps, and we're always in the, the real dark brown section on the map because we've not had very much rain at certain times of the year. And so we, we kind of... I mean, we we kind of get an inkling of what's going on because we've experienced a touch of it. Because like when, when we experience it, as it regards our, our lawn, we say hallelujah, right? Because if, if you don't get a whole lot of rain, you don't have to mow a whole lot. And so that's nice. But if, if it's just your yard that's affected, not a big deal. If it's your garden that's affected, it could be a bigger deal. You know, if, if you can a lot, if you rely on some of that produce uh, for some of your food, it's kind of a bigger deal because your stuff's not doing as good as what you, you would want. But it's not a terrible deal because you can put out the sprinkler. You can bring out the garden hose. You can take out a watering can. You can do all those things. And so it's, it's not a, a terrible, terrible inconvenience. But if it's your field or your pasture, then we're starting to get into some real effects. Because if, if you don't have the rain, you don't have the water in the ponds, you don't have the water in the creek, you don't have the, the, the grass in the field, you don't have the, the hay that you need. If you raise row crops, if you raise stuff out in the field like beans and corn, stuff like that, that stuff isn't going to grow. And so then you have a big financial effect, and it can affect uh, your food. Now, we have had rain just at different times not enough understand they didn't get any rain any for three years in a row now just imagine that think what your yard would look like i mean sometimes we go out and and everything's all brown and the leaves are starting to turn and and the trees are dying and and the and the the the, the ponds out in the pastures are, are getting real low and that's just with not getting very much rain imagine three years of zero rain and they didn't, have, they didn't have a Walmart down the street. They couldn't bring in shipments of food from outside their area. What, the food that they had was what they could grow. The food that they had was from the livestock that they could raise. And so if you don't have any rain, that stuff is going to be in short supply very, very fast. And so a famine was in the land for three years. Now you say, now why would God do this? Was God just being mean? Is that why he did it? Well, no, he, he warned them what would happen back in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verses 16 and 17. Here's what he said. He said, Beware that your hearts are not deceived. 
and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So God said, you're going to go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's watered abundantly. But you know what? If you don't, do, if you don't continue to worship me and you, you worship these, other, these false gods, these, these things that are just statues of, of wood and stone, they're not the true God. If you worship them, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to shut off. I'm going to turn off the water spigot, so to speak, and you won't have any rain. And the people said, okay, well, let's worship the, the, these false gods anyway. Now Ahab led the people astray, worshiping the Baals. Now this, this Baal worship came over from Phoenicia, from his wife Jezebel, and God did exactly what he said he would do. So Elijah goes to Ahab, and he says, you're not going to get any rain for three years, and then he goes and hides, because he's not a dummy. Because if, if he's still standing there, and, and you know after a couple months of no rain, a year of no rain, people are going to come hunting him down. And that's exactly what Ahab tried to do. He sent out messages to surrounding nations and, and, and looked for uh, Elijah. But Elijah went and hid himself for three years. Now while all this is going on, Jezebel hates God, hates the prophets of God, and, and has a whole bunch of them killed, has a whole bunch of them slaughtered. And so this, this, this head of their household, a man by the name of Obadiah, fears the Lord, and he takes a hundred prophets of God and hides them in a cave, in, in two caves, really, splits them up into fifties, gives them food and water, and keeps them going. And, and so they're out, Obadiah and Ahab are out trying to find any kind of grass for the animals. And that's where we pick up. Obadiah is out looking for some grass. He comes across Elijah. Elijah meets up with Ahab. And notice again what it says in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He's blind to his own sin. He doesn't recognize he's the one that's causing the problems. he's, He's blaming Elijah because Elijah was the spokesman. And notice what Elijah does. He doesn't cower. He doesn't back down. He doesn't soften his message. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't try to find some commonality or common ground with with Ahab. He just straight up tells Ahab, it ain't me. It's you. You're the problem. It's kind of like when when, when you don't get that second date. I'm sorry, it's not me. It's you. I mean, he's just telling him straight up, Ahab, it's you and your father's house because you brought all all this sin into the nation. And I want to tell you, it takes courage to stand up and tell somebody in power or something like that. It takes, it takes courage to tell, even if the person's not in power, it takes courage to deliver an unpopular message to people. And that's exactly what he did. And not only did, do we see his courage there, later on when he has the showdown at Mount Carmel, you remember there were 450 prophets of Baal there. Now remember, there are 100 prophets of the Lord besides him that he knows about because he's just heard about that from Obadiah but those hundred prophets don't show up at Mount Carmel Elijah shows up as all these people all these guys think 450 prophets all these people all the nation is watching what's going to happen between this one guy and 450 on the opposite team so to speak now they say that the biggest fear, even a bigger fear than death, is what? Does anybody know? Public speaking, getting up in front of people and delivering any kind of a message. 
And I can tell you, it used to terrify me. I would get sick every Sunday before I got up to preach. It, I remember I hadn't been in the, in the pastorate too long, and I, had, I, I didn't have to do. I had the opportunity to deliver the associational message at Lawrence County Baptist Association annual meeting. That's a big way of saying I got to preach to a bunch of people. A bunch of them were preachers. And I got up there, it was at Halltown, and I got up to, to speak. And, and when I was doing it, like, this is a lot more people than what we had at the time. And so I was used to speaking to like a handful of people, even smaller handful than what we have, on a good Sunday or even on a bad Sunday. And I got up, and if you've ever been in Halltown, you know it's kind of a long building. I got up, and it just seemed like that it, the auditorium just went for miles, it looked like. And there were people... And oh, it was so it was so nerve-wracking. And and if you've ever done something like that, if you've ever gotten up and delivered some kind of a message or, or interacted with people, you know that there's some anxiety. That's when people are on your side. Now understand, he's doing this against 450 people who are against him. And all these people are watching. And and he stood his ground. He was alone and he stood by himself. He was courageous. And I just want to encourage you today because you might be in some sort of a situation and you're really not looking forward to it because maybe you have some sort of, of, of news or, or, or message that you need to deliver to somebody. It's an unpopular piece of, of, of whatever it is, news or, or whatever. I want to encourage you to, to, to be courageous. Maybe you want to share the gospel with somebody and, and you're just so anxious and worried about it. Be courageous. You may have to stand alone, maybe in the workplace. I worked at a place one time in college. I, I believe I was the only Christian there. They were all, almost all of them were ex-cons. And there's one guy who had a great big spider tattoo on his neck. And I remember saying that he went into a store one time. This, this woman saw it, and she hauled off and smacked the spider because she thought the spider was real. Anyway, that's, that's beside the point. I, I worked there, and I, 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 was, I felt very alone. And maybe you've worked in a situation like that, too. I mean, these, the, the, the people were nice enough, but I, I still just didn't really fit. Listen, it's tempting to just go along to get along. It's tempting to, to not do what you know you ought to do just because you don't want to make waves or because you don't want to stand out. But Elijah's example should inspire us to be courageous even when we stand alone. Second thing I want you to see in our text it's kind of a, kind of a, th- th- this is kind of a little secret that we, we whisper about in churches. We try to pretend it doesn't happen, let this be the case. But the second thing I want you to see is that depression and discouragement are real struggles in the lives of believers. Depression and discouragement are real struggles in the lives of believers. So Elijah says, you know what? Ahab, you need to bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. She was, she was the, the consort of, of Baal. She was the female uh, goddess. And, and, and you, you've probably seen pictures of archaeological digs where they, they have a prophet, or a, a prophet, a statue, an idol of Baal, and you probably didn't realize what it was. The Asherah was a post. It was a pole in the ground. They worshipped a pole stuck in the ground. Anyway, he says, you bring out all 850 of them. Now, it appears that the 400 of them, the ones of Asher didn't show. 
But anyway, these 450 prophets, you bring them on out. And he says, you bring them out to Mount Carmel. Now, this all sounded good to Ahab because Mount Carmel was between Israel, where, you know, the, the land of, of the true God, and Phoenicia, where Baal worship came from, into Israel. And, and so, so it, was, it was in between. And Baal was supposedly the god of, of fire and, and storms and all this. So this was in his wheelhouse, what they were going to do, this test they were going to have. And the Baal worshippers saw Mount Carmel as a sacred place. And Elijah's going at it alone, and they're going to have 450 people. So it looks like on the outside that, that, that Elijah's really behind the eight ball. And hopefully you know the story, the, 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 the prophets of Baal, they cry out to, to Baal and they start in the morning. And they, they pick their offering and they cry out, oh, Baal, hear us. And they start gesticulating and moving around and dancing around. And of course there's no, no voice, no answer. They start carrying on and no answer. And so they get bigger and more, more voluminous and they start, ooh, they're really going at it. And then they start cutting themselves and blood's gushing out and they're doing all sorts of things. And Elijah, I love Elijah here, he starts making fun of him. Hey, maybe you should get a little louder. Maybe he's got. Maybe he's on a. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's. Maybe he's otherwise occupied. Maybe. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to, to, to wake him up. And oh, they're just a screaming and hooting and hollering and carrying on, and there's nothing happens because Baal doesn't exist. He's not a real god. And so Elijah gets up, and he says, "All right, now here's what you do. You not only have the. You not only have the, the bull laid out. Pour some water on." And so they poured water on. He says, do it again. They did it again. Do it again. So then they get all this water, the wood's wet, the, 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 the offering's wet, all this stuff. He calls out to God. Fire falls from the sky, burns up the, 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 the offering, looks up the water, burns the, 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 the rock all up. I mean, everything is wiped out. And the people, when they see it, what's their response? They bow down and say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah says, get those prophets of Baal and capture all of them. So they get them all and they take them out and they kill them all and do all this stuff. So Elijah is on this spiritual high. He's seen God do this mighty act, this, this amazing miracle. We're still talking about thousands of years later. He was there. He's on this spiritual high. The people have seen the impotence of Baal. They've seen the mighty power of God. And on top of that, God says, okay... Guess what? It's time for some rain. And so, so Elijah had, I mean, the calls for the rain. The rain comes. He, he's, he's way up here. And it's on the heels of this spiritual victory that he begins to plummet. Because he's way up here. Jezebel doesn't bother to come out and see what's going on with the prophets of Baal. Uh, Ahab tells her, and so she sends word. It makes her furious. She sends a word out, to a messenger out to Elijah says, by this time tomorrow, you're a goner. That's my version of it. But that's, that's the gist of it. He, she, she says, you got 24 hours, you better enjoy it. And, and Elijah, the Bible says in, in chapter 19, he fears and he flees. He fears and he flees. Now, if you look at chapter 19 again, look at verse 3. It says, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Now, most likely, that doesn't mean anything to you. 
Beersheba, okay, that's where he went. He was in Jezreel when all this happened. That probably doesn't mean anything to you either. Understand, here's what happened. He's in point A, Jezreel. He goes to Beersheba, point B. And this is all in about a, a day's time, about, about 24 hours probably. They're 95 miles apart. They didn't have a car. So he traveled 95 miles in the space of about 24 hours, maybe using an animal, maybe on foot. He was booking it either way. He was probably traveling night and day without stop. He was, he was just he was pushing it. And then when he got to Beersheba, the Bible says he left his servant, and then he goes another day's journey into the desert. So you can imagine what kind of physical condition he was in. He's not eating, not drinking. He's pushing it. Verse 4. I want you to look at verse 4 and notice a few things from this instance with me. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. Now, we didn't read this, but I'll go ahead and fill in some of the blanks. He ate, and then he fell back to sleep. And then he, got, he took a nap and ate some more food. And, and so he is, he is just physically exhausted. Now, I want you to, to notice a few things out of this. First, he is so distraught, verse 4, he is so distraught, so disillusioned with it all, that he, that he, he despairs for his life. He says, God, just take me on home. Second, he says, I'm not better than my father's. This appears to mean I haven't had any more success eradicating Baal worship out of Israel than what my predecessors had. Because, understand, these people saw this amazing act of God. They bowed down said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But they didn't change. There was no repentance. There was no revival. They continued to worship the Baals. And third, he promptly fell asleep. He was physically exhausted. Now, on one hand, it's difficult to understand, isn't it, how he can stand against the, the, the king. He can stand against 450 prophets of Baal with all these people looking at, at, at what's going on. And then he would be running for his life at the word of a lone woman. But I think there are a couple things that, that we can glean from this. First, the devil will often attack us the most ferociously after spiritual victory. The devil will often attack us the most ferociously after a spiritual victory. He'll do what he can to steal our joy. He'll do what he can to derail us and to depress us. We see it here. Think about the life of Jesus. Early on in his ministry, remember, he went out to the Jordan. John the Baptist is out there. He said, baptize me. And, he, and John says, no, I should be baptized by you. Remember all this? And, he said, and so he baptizes him anyway. And, and, and the, the, the heavens are open. The, the spirit comes down in bodily form. The, the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased, and, and all this wonderful stuff. And so, so Jesus is, is having this spiritual victory, so to speak. He's way up here on the mountain. What's the very next thing that happens? He goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. The devil attacks after a spiritual high. Second, we need to realize that our physical life and our spiritual lives are interconnected. 
Our physical lives and our spiritual lives are interconnected. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you're more susceptible to doing certain things, having certain attitudes, taking part in certain sins, being in whatever certain state of mind when you're in a different physical condition than another? I mean, this guy is physically exhausted. He is fatigued. He is hungry. And that leads, it contributes to his despair. He needs to eat. I've got to tell you, i got to eat every once in a while, too. And you're probably going to say, Pastor, you've, been eating, you've, been, you've not missed any meals. And that's true, I don't. But listen, if I don't eat on a fairly regular basis, I'm like a baby. And I get cranky. And I've been told that even this morning I've been cranky. But you know what? In my defense, and some of you here in, in Sunday school, I guess, heard about it. Somebody stole my donut. So I didn't get my food. I got cranky. Now listen, he had been traveling, he had been pushing it nonstop, he was tired, he was hungry, and maybe you've noticed that when you get in that condition too, you're, you're fatigued, you're hungry, you just start feeling pretty bad about life. Our, our physical lives can affect our spiritual lives. Now, I, I want to pause here and I want to verbalize something that, that often gets kind of swept under the rug. It gets ignored. It gets mischaracterized in Christianity as a whole, in Christian circles. And some of the super spiritual folks, and I put that in air quotes because that's what they act like they are, they'll say things like this to, to somebody that's, that's going through some, some disillusionment, some depression, some discouragement. They'll say things like this, well, really you just need to walk in victory. Just, just do better. You just need to have a little more faith in things like this. And, that, you know, if, if you were living like you should, you wouldn't feel like this. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's a bunch of hooey. Because there are sometimes physiological things that doesn't have anything to do with your spiritual condition, brain chemistry and things like that. Like Elijah, sometimes our, our, our discouragement, our depression, sometimes is affected by lack of proper nutrition, fatigue. And it's tempting to point out all these different things in the life of Elijah and say, well, all these things are why he was in this state. And they all contribute to it. But understand, he had a legitimate reason to be discouraged. Because he was part of this tremendous act of God. He had been there when God had done this miracle. He was there whenever all the people bowed down and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. He had heard all that. He had seen all that, and yet they, they witnessed what had happened, and yet they didn't change their, their lives. There was no repentance. There's no change. And discouragement is a real battle that all spiritual leaders fight. Now, I'm going to tell you, sometimes a, a spiritual leader may or may not let you know about it, but I'll just, I'll just let you know on a secret. Discouragement is a very real battle that every spiritual leader fights. I did some, some research this week. And according to the Barna Research Group, as of March 2022, and I, don't, don't say that out loud, just, just think, in your, think in your mind, what percentage do you think of pastors have considered quitting full-time ministry within the past year? Now you just think about it, don't, don't say it, just think. What percentage of pastors have considered just quitting it all and walking away? According to Barna, as of March 
2022, the percentage of pastors who have considered quitting full-time ministry within the past year is sits at 42%. Now, of course, you know me as a pastor, but you know other pastors too. You think about the number of pastors that are in your circle of friends, the, the, the people that you know, and you realize half of them in the past year have thought about just walking away, not just changing churches, walking away from ministry altogether. That's, that's pretty stark. And listen, it's, it's, not, it's not just pastors. It's all of us, right? We all have times of discouragement. We all have times whenever, you know, we, we expect God to, to act in a certain way. We expect people to respond a certain way. And then it doesn't happen. And sometimes we just get so discouraged. We get so down. And, and I want to tell you, that doesn't show that you are not spiritual. It doesn't show that you're in sin. It shows that you're human. It happened to Elijah. Going back to the, the, the research, I saw different numbers. I saw anywhere from 250 uh, men leave the ministry a year to 1,700 leave. No, not, not a year, a month. The 250 to 1,700 leave the ministry uh, each, each month. That's a lot. And like I said, I know it's not just on this side of the pulpit. It's on both sides of the pulpit. We all wrestle with it. It is a real issue in the life of believers. Again, if you're in that situation, it means you're human. It means you're not alone. It means that you need some encouragement. It may mean that you need to take better care of yourself. The last thing I want you to see is that regardless of how you feel, you are not alone. Regardless of how you feel, you are not alone. So, uh, Elijah leaves the, the, the shade of this juniper tree, and he goes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this, this may be, some have, if you'll, if you'll notice the wording in, uh, in verse 9, it says that he went to a cave. The Hebrew says that he went to the cave. Some, it's, it's a definite cave. It's something that's known. And you remember, Moses went up on the mountain. It's quite possible he went up onto this mountain that Elijah went up on and got the, the Ten Commandments. You remember in, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 22, God said, uh, Moses says, God, I, I want to see your glory. You remember this? And, and God said, you can't, you can't handle that. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. You remember that? Some have hypothesized. We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say. But some have, have theorized that this cave that Elijah was in may be the same cave that Moses was in when that happened. Again, we don't know. Either way, he goes there. And what does God say to Elijah? Elijah, why are you doing here? It's not that God needed the information. There's a subtle rebuke here because he didn't tell him to go there. If you look at verse 10, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts and, and, and the sons of Israel forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets. I alone am left. And, and so then, in fact, he repeats that, that exact same complaint to the Lord twice. Notice he doesn't say anything to the Lord about God providing for him for three years. Because God miraculously provided for Elijah that, that whole time. He doesn't say anything about God's protection so that Ahab didn't find him for that length of time. He doesn't say anything about the miracle of Mount Carmel. He doesn't say anything about the prophets of Baal being put to death. All he says is, he's not focusing on that. He says, everybody is, is turned from you. 
I alone left near they're hunting me down. Now he knew that there were a hundred prophets that Obadiah had hidden. And yet they're in hiding. He felt like he was all alone. You ever felt like that? Even, even though you know that's not the case, you still feel all alone. Now look at verse 18. He said, God is speaking to him. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Listen, Elijah said, It's only me. I'm flying solo. I alone am left. Everybody else is, is AWOL. It's only me left. And God says, there are a whole bunch of folks you don't even know about. 7,000 of them. Now, 7,000 is probably just a, a, obviously a, a round number. He's saying there's a, there are thousands of people who stand with you. And I want to tell you, if you're a Christian, you're never alone. Because you're, you're part of the family of God. You have brothers and sisters in Christ many of which are, are, are sitting right here in, in, in this building right now. The Bible says your, your own flesh and blood, and mother and father may forsake you, but the Lord will take you up. You may feel alone, but, but, but listen, when we come together, we should bear one another's burdens. We should encourage one another. And even if you do stand alone in a place like the workplace, guess what? You're not, you're not alone then because the Lord is with you. Now, when Elijah is making his complaint, God doesn't argue with him. He doesn't chastise him harshly. Instead, if look, look back at verse 15. It's not up on the screen. Just look in your Bible. God, in response, the prophet says, everybody's against me. Things are going bad. Look at what he says in verse 15 and following. He says, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you need to anoint this guy and this guy and this guy, one of which was his replacement, Elisha. God's response wasn't to argue with, with Elijah. His response wasn't to chastise him. His response was to give him something to do. You say, well, you know, if I'm feeling down, I wish God had give me a pat on the back and say, give me something to do. Listen, sometimes the best cure for melancholy is to serve somebody else. Sometimes the best cure for melancholy is to get out and serve the Lord. As one person I've read put it, when you throw a pity party, the only people that come are you and the devil. And you can get down the dumps, you can start singing the blues, you can start counting your bruises instead of counting your blessings. But when we get out and we serve somebody else, guess what? Our eyes get off of us and, and what's wrong with, with my situation and woe is me, and we start helping somebody else and it benefits us. And sometimes, depending on the situation of the person that we're helping, sometimes we look at them and say, wow, I thought my problems were bad. At, they have so much worse going on than me. But even if not, it, it, it's, it, it still does a person good to serve someone else. Now, I know in ways this, and, and it should really be the opposite, but it feels like it's kind of like a downer of a sermon. Because we're talking about depression and discouragement and all those things. But listen, it's in the text, and it's real life. Because each and every one of us, if, I, if we were to go around and... And, and we took the time. Each of us could tell about times. Maybe you're, you're, you could tell about time you're going through right now of discouragement, disillusionment, disappointment, depression, the feeling of, of isolation. There are things we all face. 
And, and one reason, that, that's one reason that being regular in attending worship is so important. Because each of us goes through that. And that's why it's so important when we come together to worship, we get our eyes off our problems and we put them back on Jesus. We, we get our eyes off our problems and, and, and we realize there are other people going through stuff too. And we can bear one another's burdens and they can bear our burdens and lighten the load. And that's not something you can do when you watch a sermon on TV or the internet. And I, I want you to be encouraged today because God loves you. He cares for you. He sees you and He knows what you're going through. And it may be a situation that today you need to bring it and you just need to lay it at God's feet. Maybe you need to pray and ask that God would, would, would encourage you Maybe, maybe your thing that you need to do is you need to be more regular in getting more rest and eating better. And you say, that's not spiritual. Tell that to Elijah. Whenever he got some rest and he got some food in his belly, then he was able to get up and go. Now listen, this is specifically geared to the Christian. But it may be that somebody here has never accepted Christ as their Savior. You've never trusted in Him. You've never repented of your sin. You've never turned from your sin and trusted Him alone to save you, forgive you. If, you, if that is you, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next week. Do that today. Because the Bible says that all of us are rightfully under the wrath of God because we've not believed on the Son of God. But God did not send Jesus to the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. You know, nobody looking around, I just want to ask you, do, do you have some do you have some situation in your life where you're facing discouragement, depression, feeling like maybe you're not spiritual because you've been down? Listen, you're not more spiritual than Elijah. And he got down in a pretty low spot. So much so he prayed that God would just take his life. Those things are a natural part of life, whether you're saved or not. The Bible says that we as believers have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He sees, he knows, he understands, and he cares. Heavenly Father, we, we realize as we look at, at our own lives we look at the life of people like Elijah 
that our experiences are normal, that they are expected, but that doesn't make them any easier. And God, I pray that you would encourage the discouraged today, that you would help those who need your touch. And God, I pray that um, I pray that even even now that you would lighten somebody's load. God, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that you know about what we're going through, that you care, that you understand, you'll help. And God, if there's somebody who needs to, to be courageous today, I pray that you would help them to do that. Thank you that we're never alone. Lord, if there's somebody who never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would draw them today. In Jesus' name, amen.